Uh, tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Mark's Gospel chapter 11. Kind of picking up where we left off last time. Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 11. Now the background the context of chapter 11 is Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, the people have hailed him King and Messiah. Uh, now, one interesting little uh, uh, Bible trivia fact uh, that I didn't bring out whenever I was preaching on the passage, but the triumphal entry, what day of the week was it? When Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what day of the week? Thursday? Sunday? Most churches recognize triumphal entry on a Sunday. It's actually Monday. Monday. Month was uh, the, the, uh, uh, the time when the lambs were selected for the Passover. It was always the 10th of Nisan in the, the calendar of the day. The 10th of Nisan was the day that the lambs were always selected, and that would have been Monday. That is significant and important because whenever Jesus went into Jerusalem, they were selecting him as their king. That's why there's Hosanna to the son of David, but God was selecting him as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He would fulfill his role as the lamb of God that Friday. Friday. But he was selected as the lamb as he made his triumphal entry on Monday. So while most churches uh, recognize the triumphal entry Sunday, it was actually on Monday that he made his entry. All right. So we learned something. All right. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. Right after the people proclaim Hosanna. And Jesus went into Jerusalem. Now, this is toward the evening. This is late afternoon, early evening. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So uh, he has ridden the donkey into town. The people have waved palm branches and uh, taken off their outer garments and threw in his path, proclaimed Hosanna to the son of David. Um, he has spent a little time there in Jerusalem, and then he makes his way in the late afternoon to the temple area. Now, when we talk about the temple area, we usually think of the building that housed the holy place and the holy of holies, but the temple area was massive. It was a, a huge complex. And so he makes his way into the complex, most probably just entering the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court. That was the part of the temple area that all the world could come into, uh, Jew or Gentile. It was an area that was about two and a half to three football fields in length and width. So it was a huge area. So he goes into the temple area, and what does he do? He looked around at all the things. He looked around at all that was taking place in the temple area. Now, who was the one 
who uh, told Moses uh, how to design the tabernacle. In particular, Jesus. Who was the one that told Solomon how to design the temple? That was the Lord. Now he's going in there, and he is checking everything out. Now, he had been to the temple area many times. We know, for instance, name me some of the earliest times we know that Jesus was in the temple area. Well, we know he was at eight days old. When he was eight days old, he went in for a circumcision, although I don't think he really remembered that experience on the human level. Uh, and then we see him again uh, when in the temple area. Whenever he's 12 years old, whenever he's 12 years old, uh, Mary and Joseph take him into the temple area. Uh, that was the, the time for his bar mitzvah. That was the time that he would be recognized as a uh, part of the Jewish community, accountable for his actions. Uh, he goes to the uh, temple area. And uh, he kind of wanders away from mom and dad a little bit, makes his way to where they are teaching. And there, at 12 years old, Jesus was teaching the teachers in the temple. Uh, Mary and Joseph were making their way home. And while they're on the roadway, they're looking around. And uh, uh, Joseph says to Mary, <coughs> Mary, where's Jesus? I feared he'd be with you. And she says, not with me. I feared he'd be with you. And he says, he's not with me. Now, <clears throat> don't you find it interesting in our day and time of helicopter parenting, when parents are so involved over every detail of their life that Mary and Joseph was not even aware that Jesus wasn't there with them walking home. That's interesting to me. Well, <clears throat> Joseph goes back. He finds him teaching the teachers teachers, and he kind of says, hey, what in the world are you up to, young man? And he says, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? So we know at least at, by 12 years old, Jesus was aware of the fact that he was the son of the heavenly father. So he's been there. They've gone back and forth over their time of his travels. He did most of his uh, teaching, most of his public ministry was done up in the Galilean region, but they would go to temple area during the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, over Passover, all those kind of times. So he had been there many, many times by this time. But he goes in now, knowing what is ahead in just a few days on that Friday of this week, and he is looking around, seeing all that's going on in the temple. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, Jesus there tells us that he keeps track of what's going on in the life of his churches. And he wrote seven letters to seven churches, had an angel give them unto uh, John on the Isle of Patmos, and he described how intimately he knew those seven churches and what was going on in the life of those churches. And I'm looking forward probably in January to starting to preach through the book of Revelation, and we're going to deal with those 
seven letters. Well, Jesus goes and makes his way through the temple, looks around at all things, and all things is not just the activity. All things is not just the, the list of events that's taking place. He's looking at the people, and he's looking within their hearts, and he knew all things, saw all things. He says the hour's late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Remember, he was staying at the house of who? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, just about a, a, about a mile or so away on the other side of the, uh, of the hill there. Or you call it, they call it the mountain, but it's more like a hill. All right. Uh, and notice verse 13. This is an interesting passage. It's a troubling passage for some. I don't know why, but there are some people who really get upset about this particular passage of Scripture. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves. Anybody got fig trees? Yeah, my, my dad's always had fig trees. My, my grandmama, his, his mama, uh, had fig trees at her house. Uh, Daddy's always had fig trees at our house. He's got this fig tree that's down on the end of the house. Whenever you're looking up at the house, it's down over on the left end of the house. And uh, that fig tree was there for years and did not produce a single fig. I mean, it, just, it was there, it was taking up space, and you know, but it, it would have some leaves there now and then, but it never produced any figs. Then Hurricane Hugo hit. Y'all remember Hurricane Hugo? Yeah, Hurricane Hugo hit. And it just about tore that tree to pieces. I mean, that thing was in shambles. And then we, Dad did everything he could to prop up the limbs and do all kind of stuff to save the tree. And ever since that, then, that tree has produced more figs than you can possibly eat as a family. I mean, it's just... A, uh, so there's something, uh, there's a lesson there, a parable of going through the storm and getting beaten up, but yet it produces the greatest amount of fruit. Y'all like that one? Okay, I, I like that one myself. So that, I'm, that's going to be Tim's parable. All right, Tim's parable of the fig tree. Let's see Jesus' parable of the fig tree. All right, so he says, and seeing from afar a fig tree. Now, by the way, I'm there. I got to say this. Y'all make fig preserves? Nothing like hot biscuits and fig preserves. All right, just got to get that in. All right, that was, uh, that was good. All right, all right. So, so seeing the fig tree from afar having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, isn't that interesting? We see Jesus talking to a tree. He's talking to a tree. Now, apparently, whenever he's coming out from Bethany and he's kind of making his way toward uh, Jerusalem and back into the temple area, as he's making his way there, he sees this fig tree. And the fig tree's full of leaves. Now, I don't know much about fig trees, but I do know with fig trees, whenever they produce the leaves, there's, that's a sign that there is fruit on the vine. Now, it might be very immature figs for a while, might be very small ones, they're, they're not very sweet. They're not very succulent. 
but you, you, you can eat them, I guess, if you're hungry. Jesus is hungry. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we forget he was one of us, and he was hungry. He saw the fig tree, and he says, well, if you can't have fig preserves and biscuits, maybe I can have some fresh figs. Now, by the way, the figs in, in Israel taste awesome. They even, they're even have more flavor than the figs in my daddy's house, okay? The figs there just are, have great flavor to them. Well, so he's hungry. He wants some figs. He goes to the fig tree. He sees the leaves. It should then have some fruit. He goes to it, and what does he find? Absolutely nothing. No fruit. How does he feel about this? No, he's not pleased. Not pleased. So what does he do about it? Now, now, before we talk about what he does, notice it says, it was not the season for figs. Well, if it's not the season for figs, why does he anticipate there's going to be any figs on the tree? Why does he think there's going to be fruit there? Because it's got the leaves. It's got the leaves. It's got the leaves that's supposed to have fruit. It's not the season for it. Who knows why this tree is producing leaves? But it's producing leaves. It's producing leaves because Jesus wanted it to. Okay? It's producing the leaves. And he goes to the tree. It's not the season for In response, Jesus said to it, and notice he's talking to the tree. Let no one eat fruit from, notice he makes it personal, from you, you tree, ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, what do you think the disciples thought about this conversation of Jesus with the tree? Guys, he's lost it. <laughs> yeah, what is, what, what's going on with this? Now, this is the only miracle of destruction that you're going to see in the Gospels. This is a miracle. It's a miraculous thing that happens. It's a miracle of destruction. Every other miracle he does is a miracle of healing. He does miracles in nature where he stills the storm and he calms the seas. He does spiritual miracles wherever he casts out demons. But this is a miracle of destruction. And there are some people that have real problems with this. There are commentators, learned Bible scholars like Barclay. Anybody ever heard of Barclay, William Barclay? Okay. Uh, usually very reliable. He says, this incident in the life of Jesus, he doesn't understand and probably should not have been included in Scripture because it makes Jesus look petulant. He's getting very angry over something that doesn't matter. And then he curses this fig tree when it's not the season for figs. There are others, other commentators, Bible commentaries you go to and you start reading about this incident, and they say this makes Jesus look petty. That he's picking on little things that really don't matter. In the grand scheme of things, and knowing what's going to happen by Friday when he's got other major concerns to happen, and, and he's concerned about whether this fig tree's got figs on it or not? Now, to all those commentators, I say, baloney. And they don't understand Scripture. 
because one of the things that helps us understand this passage and why it's so significant is in Mark's gospel. Let me teach you this about Mark's gospel. Mark, throughout his gospel, makes sandwiches. Okay? There's what's called Markin sandwiches. Sandwiches in the gospel of Mark. And that is, he puts two or three, what we call, remember the word pericope? Events, teachings. He takes two or three of them, usually they come in threes, and he puts them in as a sandwich. They go together. There's usually the meats in the middle. All right? Sometimes he'll do the first two, and then when you see the outside piece of bread, it kind of explains what the first two things were about. But they go together. Now, one of the things, I don't know if you do this, I'm sometimes guilty of this, Whenever I'm studying the Bible, I will take one pericope, I'll take one incident that happens, one passage of teaching, one, one event, and I'll just study that and look at that and try to dig everything I can out of that one thing. And then I'll go to the next thing in the passage, and I take everything I can out of that. Then I'll go to the next passage, and I'll try to dig everything I can out of that. And so I'm, I'm looking at the trees, but I miss the forest. Sometimes we say they miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we, you know, we, we miss it the other way around. We can so focus on the details of one incident that we failed to back up and take the overview and see that there are certain things that are connected together within a chapter or two. That, that really to fully understand them, you have to keep them together not just look at them separately. And such is the case with Mark 11. In Mark 11, we have a Markin sandwich. All right? We have a Markin sandwich. So, let's see what this sandwich looks like and why it's there. Well, if we're going to follow the sandwich, if we're going to follow the sandwich kind of teaching, uh, we've seen what comes before it, and then let's look and see what comes after it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because of all the people, uh, uh, that all the people were astonished at his teachings. And in, when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Hmm. Now, my commentators I was kind of studying says Jesus is having a bad day. He wakes up, goes out, and his day starts out bad. 
He's hungry. He sees a fig tree, figs, fig leaves on it, supposed to have figs, goes to it. No figs. He gets upset, mad at this thing, curses it. Then he goes in. He's already upset. He's already mad. He's already in a bad mood. He goes into the temple. Things aren't going the way it should be going in the temple. So what does he do? Grabs a whip, starts throwing over tables and chasing people out of the temple. He's lost his temper. No, he didn't lose anything. He's in perfect control. That's the point. Absolute control. So, we're kind of getting some of the sandwich built here. Now let's go back and see if we can understand them. He sees the fig tree from afar, has leaves, goes to see if it has any fruit. It should. It's got leaves. When he comes to it, he found nothing. Wasn't the season for figs. Then he curses it. No one ever eat fruit from you again. What's it about? Well, to understand it, you've got to put it to the next thing. Where does he go from here? The temple. And he's upset with the people in the temple. He tells us the temple was designed by God, and that and when he, when he, the word temple that's used here, there's a particular word that's being used for temple. Again, usually when we think of temple, we think of the holy place and the holy of holies. This is a word that refers to the outer courtyard of the temple. It refers to the courtyard of the Gentiles. This was the place where Gentiles could come. If they were seeking knowledge of God, wanting to have some knowledge that the, the Jewish people were the people of God, they, they knew the law of God, they had the scrolls, if they wanted to find out information about God, they would go to the outer courtyard. They were allowed there. You remember, there were sections to the courtyard. There was the section outside the holy place, and the holy that, that squared little building there, so relatively small building there. But in the temple complex, you had the court of the Jewish men, that the Jewish men could go into. Then you had the court of the... Jewish women, and the women could go there. And then you had the court of the Gentiles. Now, of all the courtyards that were in the temple, which courtyard do you think was the largest? It was given the most space. Which one? The courtyard of the Gentiles. It was many times larger than the court of the Jewish men, or the Jewish women. Because the Jewish nation is relatively small, but the Gentile world is huge. Now God, whenever he called the Jewish nation, whenever he created the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, established the Jewish religion, he did so with a purpose. Through the Jewish people, he was going to bring forth his Messiah, but he also gave them a task in their world for whatever generation they were living in. And what was the task that God had given the Jewish nation? To be a lighthouse unto the world. They were to be able to share 
the way to God to all the other nations of the earth. What did the Jewish people do? <sighs> Kept it to themselves. On rare occasions they would share with others, but usually they didn't go out to tell people about God. People would hear about God somehow and then come to them and say, can you share something about this God of yours? They were doing just the opposite of what God had told them to do. They were to be the ones through which the message of God and the worship of God should go forth through the world. But they only thought about themselves. And whenever you start thinking about yourself and you get selfish, how do you feel about other people, especially even other people like you? If you're being self-focused and selfish and self-centered, you kind of rub each other the wrong way, don't you? Well, that's what was happening within the Jewish nation. And you had some people that felt they knew a little bit more than everybody else. Y'all ever knew know-it-alls? Aren't they a joy to be around? Just, ah, nah. They said, they, they, they want, they said we, we know everything. And y'all should be as blessed to be like we are. And then the people that thought they know, knew everything started kind of setting themselves apart. And they looked down on everybody else. And when they looked down on everybody else to make themselves feel superior, they started making it as hard as they could for the other folks. Y'all are a bunch of low-life heathens. Y'all ought to be like we are. So they made a bunch of rules and regulations trying to keep everybody in line, trying to control them, trying to control them and make themselves look good. You heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all those folks? That's what was happening in Israel. And they weren't teaching truth. They weren't teaching the Word of God. They were teaching their own stuff that they had added to the Word of God. In fact, they saw the stuff they came up with as even being more important than what God had to say. Now here, God had called them to be the light unto the nations. To take His Word and His person throughout the earth, that the world would be filled with His glory, that the world would be filled with worship unto Him. But Israel didn't do it. The nation as a whole didn't do it, and the people who were supposed to be their leaders and their teachers puffed up with pride and arrogance. And outwardly, tried to make themselves appear to have their act together. And inwardly, they were like a whitewashed tomb, Jesus said. The outside looks really good. The inside is full of rotten bones. That's what was happening when Jesus came into the world. That's what was happening when Jesus walked in the temple. 
Now let's go back to the fig tree. It was not the season for figs, but the issue, here's what I want you to understand. The issue was not the lack of the fruit. The issue was the presence of the leaves. The presence of the leaves, if anybody saw a fig tree that had leaves on it, you would think it's producing good fruit. It wasn't the season for the fig, so it shouldn't have been producing the leaves, but it was. Do you know why? That tree was a hypocrite. It was trying to look like something it really wasn't. It was all about the leaves and how the leaves, make, they could make the leaves look good. Oh, that plant, one of those leaves look good. But there's no fruit. The leaves say, oh, you can come and get nourished. You can find what will satisfy your hunger. But all it was was leaves. Jesus goes to it as a pretty plant, full of lovely leaves. Don't fig leaves look good? Now they'll eat you, but they look, they look good. No fruit. I would remind you, Jesus teaches us, it's by their fruit you'll know them. If you want to find, tell the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit, between the one who professes to know Jesus and have salvation versus the one that has an outward show but inwardly lost as they can be. It's by the fruit, not by the leaves. You see, you can fake the leaves. You can't fake the fruit. You can fake the outward appearance. You can't fake what's down in the heart who you really are. You can try. You can try. But eventually you'll be found out because it's all leaves and no fruit. Who's the fig tree? Why does he talk to it as if it's a person? He says, you will never bear... He doesn't talk to it like it's a tree. He doesn't talk to it like it's a plant. He talks to it like a person. Because who's the fig tree? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. And in particular, the religious leaders. You see language like this in the Old Testament. I'm not making this up. Language like this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is usually referred to in two agricultural terms. First, it's referred to as a fig tree, and then at times it's referred to as a vine, the vineyard. The vineyard. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 12 and following. It's talking about the nation of Israel and the corruption of Israel. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. 
nor did they know how to blush. Boy, is that described this day. People don't know how to blush anymore. Can you watch television and not blush? They did not know how to blush. Shame is like a, it's a word that doesn't have meaning in our day and time. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. Now notice, no grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? In the midst of all this that's going on, why do we just sit still? Assemble yourselves. Let us enter the fortified cities. Let us be silent there. For the Lord God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink. Vinegar. Why? Because we have sinned against the Lord. So here in this passage, he talks about the grapes and the figs that are going to wither and die under his judgment. Notice Isaiah 5. Now in Isaiah 5, now if you remember the first sermon I ever preached here, out of Isaiah 6, holy, 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 and, and when Isaiah gets caught up into the presence of the Lord, he says, woe is me, I am undone. Well, you've got to contrast that to Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is looking at the nation of Israel. And he says, woe is you for the, because you're doing this. And woe is you because you're doing this. And woe is you for do, you're doing this. And woe is you because you're doing this evil. Then he gets caught up in the presence of God himself. And he's no longer concerned about what they're doing. It's it, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of uncleanness. Okay. Well, let's look at the chapter 5, just in the first little section there. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved. Now the well-beloved is God. Okay? Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Now, the vineyard is Jerusalem. The hill is Mount Zion. It's Mount Moriah in Abraham's day, where he offered the sacrifice, or went to offer the sacrifice of, of Isaac. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared it out of its stones. Anybody been to Israel? It is the rockiest terrain I've ever seen in my entire life. There's nowhere you can look anywhere where there's not these massive, you talk about rocks, boulders. I mean, big rocks everywhere, every stretch of land, every, all throughout all the buildings, no matter where, where you travel to. It's just full of rocks. It says he dug it up and cleared out its stones. Now that's doing something. He planted it with the choices fine. He built a tower in its midst. 
What was the tower? And remember, he's talking about Jerusalem. What's the tower? The temple. The temple. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. Why, now, why would you build a wine press in a vineyard? Because you're expecting fruit, and you're going to crush them and turn it into grape juice, okay? He expected to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes, not the grapes he planted. Wild grapes were the grapes of the world. The nation of Israel followed worldliness instead of following the Lord God. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, now he tells us, Jerusalem, and now, O inhabitants of Ju Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. Now notice verse 4. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God's saying, what more could he have possibly done for him than what he did? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take down its hedge, his spiritual hedge and the walls of Jerusalem. And it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will lay it to waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. Kind of sounds like the curse on the ground, doesn't it? As a result of sin. I also commanded the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah who are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. What is God, through his prophet Isaiah, saying to Israel, saying to Jerusalem? You hypocrites. You hypocrites. After all that I've done for you, after, after all I've done in you, after all that I've given you, you turn your back on me. And you bear no good fruit. So instead of being placed in the wine press that produces something good, he's going to put them in the wine press in the book of Revelation of his wrath. And he's going to tread out the wine press of the wrath of God in the book of Revelation. See the agricultural imagery. The fig, the grape. So he curses the tree. Now who's he cursing? 
Israel. And says, you will bear, none will eat the fruit. Israel was to be the one that carries the word of God to the nations. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not after Friday. Actually, not from the point where he issues this curse on Monday. Then where does he go? He deals with a fig tree. The, it's, the fig tree is a, is a living parable, if you will. Then verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple. Now, remember last night, he was just there looking around. He's checking it out. That's a good word there. Before you decide to do something, go check things out. Make sure you fully understand and see what's going on. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats. He overturned the chairs uh, of those who sold doves. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry out wares to the temple. Now, what's going on here? The temple complex, instead of being primarily a place of worship, it was primarily a place where people could make money. Out in the court of the Gentiles. Now remember, Israel was supposed to take the message of God and the word of God to the Gentile world. But they didn't. But they built this court of Gentiles in the temple complex and invited the Gentiles to come in. But while they're there, if they want to buy anything, they want something to eat, they want to offer a sacrifice, they've got to use temple money. Because you can't use, because this is, this is God's place. We can't use worldly things in God's place. So we don't want worldly money. Now we do here, but we don't want, <laughs> we don't want worldly money. It's got to be sanctified money. It's got to be temple money. So you've got to take your worldly money, give it to our money changers, and they've got a certain exchange rate they'll figure out, and they'll give you so much temple money for your worldly money. Now here's the deal. The money changers were always ripping them off. They would come up with these strange exchange rates that nobody could really understand. And he said, well, we're going to convert this way, this way, this for this, for this, and this, and this. So here's what you get. You give me this, I'll give you that. That's what you get. And the guy said, well, that doesn't seem, oh, that's the way it is. You questioning a religious man? Man of God? And so they were ripping them off. They were pocketing the money. Whenever the Jewish people came, they came from long distances. They had to come to offer their sacrifices. This is the time of the Passover. They had to come to offer their sacrifices. Traveling with animals, a great distance, it just wasn't feasible. And so they made arrangements. We will help you out. Don't worry about traveling and having to bring food for the animals and stuff like that, trying to take care of them. You just come and we will provide sacrifices, animals, that we have certified 
to be acceptable. Now, those are the spot, the ones without spot and blemish. We have certified them. They've got the temple certification. You can count on them. Money back guarantee. <laughs> we can certify them. You just come and we'll let you buy them here. But you got to buy them with temple money. Some bought lambs. Do you know the poorest of the poor that had no money, that had no material goods, could buy doves? Doves were really, really cheap. They could come buy doves. And so they had doves there. If they can't afford the lamb, buy doves. I find that interesting. You know when Mary and Joseph goes to offer their sacrifices when Jesus is 12? You know it says they purchased doves. Why? They were very poor. They were very poor. So, bottom line is, if you think there's inflation now, you hadn't seen anything until you go to the temple. I mean, they were ripping people off left and right. The very people that these religious leaders were supposed to be helping and strengthening and teaching and getting them as close to God as they could, they were using them for their own interest. That's why Jesus is so upset. He's angry. So he goes in and he drives out those who bought and sold. In the, now notice, he drove out the people that were buying as well as those who were selling. Now who are the ones who are ripping them off? The sellers. But who did he also drive out? The people that were buying. Why? Weren't these children of God too? The Jewish people, they should have stood up and said, this is not right. This is not right. And we're not going along with it. You need to make some changes. Now on a side note here, why is Israel justified in bombing and killing all those people in Gaza? The world right now, which I knew this is how God's setting this up. Israel is going to kill so many Palestinians, the world out there is going to grow to hate Israel. That's why they're going to join together to go to war against Israel at a certain point. They're going to say, you are bloodthirsty, you have created all this carnage, you were wrong to do it. I listened to a CNN reporter the other day. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but a CNN reporter was talking to one of the leaders in Israel. And man, I was getting embarrassed about how he was talking to this leader of Israel about how dare you, how, how can you call yourself just killing all these innocent Palestinians? Why is Israel just in doing it? Who attacked them? Hamas. The people on news are they're not killing the people of Hamas, they're killing the innocent Palestinians. Who put the, the Hamas in power in Gaza? Who made them their government? The Palestinians. Now, what the Palestinians, if they want the fighting to stop, 
They should go and say, we know where Hamas is. We'll show you where they are. We'll turn them in. Take care of them. But they're not. They're not standing up for what's right. They could. They could end the... The, the Palestinians could end it overnight if they wanted to. But they're the ones contributing to it. I haven't heard that on the news once. Not once. Now, getting back to Scripture. The ones who are buying should have done something about what was going on. But they're just letting it continue. The only thing evil needs to continue is for good men to do nothing. And that's what was happening. Nobody was doing what they should do. So he drives out those who bought and sold. And the scribes, and the, what do you say? Then he taught them. Now he's te- in the midst of all that's going on, Jesus in grace and in love is, is trying to teach them. And he taught them, saying to them, is it not, he goes back to the word, is it not written? Goes back to everything that you do, everything you believe has to come from the word. Is it not written? My house, it's not their house to do with what they want to. It's God's house. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's usually where we leave it. Supposed to be a house of prayer. It is. When we're evolved, we should pray. They should have prayed. But who are they praying for? For all the nations, remember? That's what God called them to do. That court of the Gentiles, in the court of the Gentiles, they should have been praying for the Gentile nations. That they would come to know the one true God. But they weren't. What were they doing? Making money. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves, a place where thieves and robbers are comfortable and feel at home. Let me get on one other little thing while I'm here. In our day and time when it comes to churches, the big church movement thing for many years now, several years now, is we need to make the church a place that people that are not church people can feel comfortable in. It needs to look like the places they're used to going. It needs to sound like the music and stuff, like music they're used to listening to. We don't want to make them feel uncomfortable whenever they come to church. We want them to feel comfortable so they'll listen to us. And I say... Hogwash! When people of the world come in here, I want them, number one, to know this place is a house of God. I want them to know this place is a place that's sacred and holy because it's been set apart to be used for the sole purpose of honoring and glorifying God. I want them to know when they come in with their worldly mindsets and their worldly hearts and their worldly lifestyles, when they come in here, I want them to feel uncomfortable because they're in their sin. What they're doing is wrong. And the only way they're going to feel uncomfortable is they're confronted with the Word of God. The Word of God has that effect on them. 
If the Word of God is presented the way it ought to be presented, it ought to make you a little uncomfortable. If you don't feel a little agitated and edgy and a little guilty when you're in here, I have not done my job. If you come in here and just walk out with all these warm, fuzzy feelings all the time, say, man, that's a great experience. I just feel so good. Man, that's awesome. I feel pumped up. If that's the way you feel all the time when you come in here, y'all need to fire me. Seriously, you need to fire me. I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing my job. He says, <laughs> he's teaching them, what's the sermon? This is what you're supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to be doing, and you're not doing it. Describes how they, how they feel about it. Now, he's doing what he should do, but not what they want him to do. So the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Why? Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. They're afraid that he might get a bigger following than they do. Now, so Jesus went in and he cleansed the temple. Now, by the way, this is one of two times he cleanses the temple. In John's gospel, John tells us that at the beginning of his ministry, he went in and cleansed the temple. Well, about two and a half, three years later, he goes back to the same temple and nothing's changed. Soon as he cleansed it, they started going, whenever he left, they started doing the same thing all over again. So he goes in this final time before the cross. Now we can sit here and talk about the temple in Jerusalem all day long and how they had distorted things and misused things. But beloved, I think there are two temples the Lord desires to cleanse tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. first temple He wants to cleanse tonight is yours and mine. He wants to cleanse us. The Holy Spirit... That this morning when I talked about being wrecked, how have you ever thought how God, what it means that God lives in you? Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it ought to look like it. It ought our lives ought to look like He lives within us. And we've made far too many compromises. If my just a couple of generations, if my dear grandmother had the chance to come into this world and see what it's like now, if she had an opportunity to come visit a lot of our churches we have now, she'd be shocked and she would be disgusted. We have compromised so much that when we see the real thing, we think the real thing is abnormal. It's the thing that's odd. And that's the thing, way it's supposed to be. There's a second temple. Ephesians 2.19 Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom... The whole building, that's the body of Christ, that's the church, being fitted together. He's the one who brings us together. Why do those people join the church this morning? 
because Christ knew we needed them in order to accomplish what He wanted us to be. We needed them, they needed us to be what they were supposed to be. He fit us together to grow into a holy temple into the, in the Lord and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the first temple He wants to cleanse is our own heart and life. The second temple He wants to cleanse is His church. His church. This place ought to be a place of righteousness and holiness. And we ought to treat one another in righteousness and holiness and love. We're to serve one another, not to be served. We are to look out for each other's interest, not just our own. When we are together as the body of Christ, it ought to be the closest thing that we will ever experience on this earth as to what heaven is like. This is to be a little piece of heaven on earth. And when people from the outside come in, they ought to be able to experience what heaven is like among us to give them a holy desire for what we have that they don't. Heaven is a place of holiness, and sin will feel out of place. The Bible says in heaven there's going to be no sin there. Well, in here, when sin enters, it ought to feel out of place. But not only just feel out of place, but be given a desire for holiness. Righteousness is only found in Christ. That's why we're here. So we need to look around. We need to do what Jesus did. We need to say, Lord, help me look around in my own life and let me see where I've compromised. Show me my own hypocrisy. What's all leaf but not fruit? What's just the appearance but not the real thing? And in our church, in our church, let's look around. If there's something around here just for show, let's get rid of it. Let's just get rid of it. If it's that which honors and glorifies Christ and presents His light and His glory, let's hold fast to it and say we will not compromise. We're not going to compromise on this issue just to get numbers. We're not going to compromise on truth so that people feel good about us. One mistake, and I, I try, I want you to know I have a hard time trying to figure out how to walk this tightrope. I've seen other pastors that worked in such a way, did what they did, so that their people loved them. I mean, they, I know pastors 
their churches, the church members, a lot of them almost worship them more than Christ. I mean, they just really love them because the pastor's always doing this for them, this and, so, and they love the preacher. That's, okay, there's a certain level of that that's good. There's a certain level of that that's good. But the problem with a lot of pastors I've seen that do that, they've taught their people how to love them, but not love Christ. Listen to me. I appreciate the fact I know you love me. You've demonstrated that in many different ways, and I appreciate that. But it is much, much, I can't tell you how much more important it is to me that I teach you so that you can love Christ in His fullness, no matter how you feel about me. If I help you come to a place where you understand Christ, so much the glory of all that He is, so that you are absolutely, totally in love with Him, that's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. And I would also say, parents, you want your children to love you? I understand that. But if you get them to love you, but you don't get them to love Christ, even more than they love you, we kind of miss what our primary calling is. Don't be so obsessed that you make them loving how they like you or feel about you, your idol. Make sure you show them, teach them, demonstrate to them the life of Christ in such a way they fall in love with Him. And we'll close there for tonight. So, leave you with this. Don't let it be about the leaves. Make it all about the fruit.